Hello everyone, this is Noah and John and we are from Urban Digs and today we are talking Manhattan. And Johnny, we got uh, attorney session today. We're going with yep. Daniel Gersberg. Mm -hmm. This guy, I love Daniel. Uh, he's a partner at Connor, Gersberg and Milnick. Okay, so any, any agents out there, um, any, any consumers, I guess, buyers, sellers, I mean, the attorneys is where it's at, Johnny. That's, that's where all the deals are happening. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, uh, you know, Daniel does a ton of deals. So uh, looking forward to having him on the show today because he's going to, you know, steer bridge us in the, the right direction as always. Yeah, bridge that gap. Exactly. Go with the front lines. This is truly the front line. So with that said, Daniel, thank you for joining us. Gentlemen, a pleasure as always. <laughs> Tell us what's going on out there, uh, Daniel. People don't know what's happening. Give us a general market update. And uh, what are you seeing out there in lawyer land? It is pandemonium. It is absolute insanity. And there is absolutely no metrics that say it's going to stop anytime soon. So I have been, we were talking off camera about this a second ago. I have been busier than I have been in my 16 year career. Any notion of deal volume falling, any notion of, you know, Manhattan being dead or Brooklyn being dead or everyone being dead mm -hmm. is entirely out the window. Um, we are seeing negotiability on a lot of our deals. Uh, we're seeing a lot of back and forth we are seeing, to be honest with you, people sort of on their last nerves and frayed, and that sort of dictates how these negotiations are starting to happen these days. Whereas before we would say that the sellers had the upper hand when, uh, I should say buyers had the upper hand when, when, when COVID sort of started here, you really are seeing a massive, I would say tectonic shift depending on the type of deal and where you are about who has the upper hand. What I will tell you is that, you know, when I mentioned nerves being frayed, people want to be in contract now. And the reason they want to be in contract now way more than before is because they are dying for any sort of modicum of certainty in their lives that they simply don't have with COVID out there, with unemployment out there, with the market the way it is. This house, this apartment, this pieter, this whatever is the one thing that they're sort of clinging to. And because of that, negotiations have become tense is probably the wrong word, but we're really, really diving in deep on a lot of these negotiations, whereas before we were just you know, pushing papers the wrong term, but it was going smoothly and, and no issues whatsoever. Every deal seems to have hair on it. Again, anecdotally, it could be me, but there's a right. lot of stuff that's going back and forth. Right, and if, you're, if you were to have to say out of the buy side or the sell side, um, which of these sides is proving to be the more difficult one to get to the table here? It's tough, uh, you know, because it used to be this when, when COVID first started, it was the whole seller mentality of, well, my place is worth X. And so this isn't going to contract because they're, they're throwing these sort of laughable numbers at me. But the question now becomes, where are you going yeah. rather than how much should you pay? And I think what we're going to see for the rest of this year into Q1 of next year into Q2 is a backlog of sellers not being able to go to specific places. And because of that, how does that affect the actual market now, both in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, wherever you want to where you sort of look at it? Um, that's what we're kind of seeing in terms of sellers sort of pausing and saying, if I'm going to do this, and the one thing I, I would take from this entire thing is post-possession clauses are becoming huge. So sellers are saying, if I'm going to do this, I need time to move somewhere. I need to go somewhere. I need to, you know, if they want to rent somewhere, that's fine. It's like this. But if they want to buy a place, it's causing a lag in the actual deal flow and, and how long it's taking to not only get into contract, but also close as well. So that's, that's, that's very interesting, Danny. So let me ask, you know, just... I, you know, from your sample size of the deals you're working with, where are these sellers going? Are they staying in the New York City metropolitan area? Are they they leaving? Are they part of the exodus? Uh, so a lot of them, when this first started, uh, was part of the exodus. As you see from my 80s basement, I also was part of the exodus by accident. I was looking prior to that, but uh, but I became part of the exodus. Many of them are now kind of, it's, it's kind of weird. They're saying, I may stick around and rent, right? 
So they want to unload. And I think there's a lot of reasons why this is happening. I don't just think it's a COVID thing. I think part of it may be that their mortgages are resetting or that there's you know kids that are growing up. And whereas before they'd move into a three bedroom in downtown Brooklyn, now they're going straight to the suburbs and skipping that middle step, um, but they're getting out. But it's certainly not even close to the exodus, if you want to call it, um, that was going on at least anecdotally three months ago or four months ago. Why is that? I would argue it's because, so I moved to Weston, Connecticut. If a place is up here for sale, it's up at such a ridiculously inflated price that at some point someone goes, whoa, I get that I'm getting a pool and my kids can swim for two months, but I can't afford this. Like, this is crazy. Even if I'm a hedge fund guy, I can't afford this or gal can't afford this, right? So you're seeing a bit of a stop there. The main thing, again, that I'm seeing is that if sellers are selling in New York, they are renting another place. Now, there's a variety of reasons, again, for that, but they're sticking around more so than they were six months ago. Six months ago, it was a pandemonium to get out the door, or let's say four months ago, it was pandemonium to get out the door. No longer. Right. So, you know, John and I have been talking about that, how the fear yeah. trade is, is, we think it's over. I mean, not to say that it's not a fearful environment or an uncertain environment, but the fear trade, the level of fear relative to where it was March, April, May is completely different. I mean, would you agree with that on what you see um, putting these deals together? Yes. Um, I think the fear trade, I, I never, and I, I sound ridiculous saying this, I, I never bought after the first three weeks of COVID, the fear trade based on COVID. I thought the fear trade out of New York was based on quality of life, was based on legitimate factors like a, a decreasing tax base that was going in on high, high-end apartments, let's say. Um, but you are seeing people that are basically saying, look, light at the end of the tunnel, there's a vaccine coming, Broadway's going to open up, I'm eating outside al fresco, right, in 20-degree weather, woo. And you are seeing a, a lot of that sort of, uh, sort of those fears fall by the wayside way more than, again, people were losing their minds. I mean, if you looked at moving companies, right? We moved out of Bed-Stuy not too long ago. We had no problem quoting four companies and getting them on the day that we wanted. You go three months before that, like I would have had to give my kidney to get, you know, one guy with one leg in a van to show up and pay him $4,000. So it's definitely changing. That's very interesting. So let me shift now to the buyers on the on your deals. Uh, what sort of obstacles are, are they encountering? I mean, besides, you know, sellers looking for the post-possession clauses, but is it, are, are they getting stuck on price? Are they getting stuck on uh, mortgage rates? I mean, what, what are the things that are sort of, you know, in, inhibiting them? It's all practical problems. So it has nothing to do, at least when it comes to me, it's not a price issue. There's not a ton of renegotiation. I have the one-offs where I'm doing a land lease now where we're getting close to 10% off the ask, even post acceptance of the offer. Most of the stuff that I'm dealing with is, can my bank get me to close it? This is a real concern that no one talks about. Yeah. Fantastic rates, but if you're hiring people that were working in a pizzeria two months ago to be your underwriters for a major bank now, you're going to have problems with deal flow. And that's what I'm finding across the banks, right? Um, and so what I'm telling my clients and what I would tell brokers to tell their clients is you may have someone great at bank X or bank Y. You need two backups. You may need two applications in during the same period of time. I have in the past five, I'd say in the past week or so, I've had four closings that have gone on for more than five hours. Why have they gone on for more than five hours in a COVID-based environment, which scares the living bejesus out of me? Because they can't close the loans. There's not enough processors looking at the documents that are there. The closing disclosures that are going out are wrong because this is their yeah. first time doing math, et cetera. This problem will persist. That is a buyer's largest problem when it comes to it. Um, when you look at a Brooklyn specific market, for instance, 
Um, you have issues where you go deeper into Brooklyn where people are buying townhouses, two family, three family that have been flipped without permits. And the buyer doesn't get that information, you know, depending on who their attorney is or who they work with until late in the game. Mm -hmm. And then we have to figure out, wait a sec, was this done correctly? Um, what has to be done? And on top of that, how do you deal with DOB? And is DOB there? Is HPD there? Is Landmarks there? What happens if there's a second lockdown? That uncertainty is stretching the period of time from when we get the, the actual deal sheet itself to when it's going into contract. Now, I always thought that number, by the way, was a little bit superfluous in the sense of you don't know if the deal flow is or the, the deal time is taking too long because I have two kids and I have to watch them and I can only do two deals at 9 p.m. at night or if it's sentiment. But those things are, are what are slowing up buyers. Am I buying a proper place that's properly permitted? And can I get a loan? And how long is it going to take me to get a loan? Yeah, that's you know, Daniel, that whole loan thing, um, you're right. Not a lot of people are talking about that. And I mean, it, it, this is what happens in deflationary environments. I mean, this is what happens even though the rates are low. And it sounds great. And it seems like it's been low forever. They're low for a reason. They're low because of deflations here. And, and that's kind of a negative mm -hmm. thing. And these banks are not lent. They're, they're contracting the, the, the criteria and the credit and the banks that are going out there. And, um, you know, Jamie said the same thing, John. When, and when we're doing this whole legal edition, he said the banks, the banks, the banks is, is the problem over here. No one's talking about it. I mean, are you seeing a lot of cash deals right now or you're not seeing any cash deals? Very, very few. I was seeing more three months ago, four months ago. I think it's anecdotal more than anything else. But I mean, why would you do cash if you can literally finance for 2.75%? It's essentially free money, right? You get the loan. The problem is the disconnect. Exactly, right? That, that's a huge problem. The disconnect is the salesperson who has to eat, who has to feed their family. He or she is going to try and sell that loan. Back office can't do it. Though. Back office can't, can't, can't actually deal with the volume. So I think these issues are going to have to come to a head sooner rather than later. I don't know what the solution is, but I know it's going to be a problem getting people to close, et cetera. And anytime you hear, by the way, a broker say, well, I have no problems with this, you know, this deal. That's great. But there are many, many deals that are facing issues. Many, many co-op boards and managing agents that are working from home. How do you process a 400 page board application when you're in front of two kids? Yeah. And very hopefully this whole, this whole experience changes all that. And there's better ways to do those types of things and those packages and these, these board minute meetings and all giving you guys all the documents you need to do a quicker transaction. I mean, there's just so much room to improve the, the efficiency of the, of the whole flow here. Yeah. Number one, uh, consider not having that many children, which is something that I think about all the time with two at home. Two, um, there is. And I think that many, many times out of this, you have silver linings that come to it. One of the silver linings, at least for me, is I haven't checked board minutes in a really long time. I haven't actually physically gone somewhere. Yeah. I've had pushback uh, where the managing agent says, sorry, you have to do this in person. I would say, um, what if I get sick? On an email. Yeah. And they send me the board minutes. From that will come electronic applications that should have been there a long time ago theoretically, you know, uh, board minutes that, that can be sent over and questionnaires that can be filled in very quickly. Um, it just, there has to be more of a premium placed into these sort of inefficient tasks that can get done much, much quicker. Uh, I think I, it will. Yeah. Hey, Daniel, um, are, are, when you look at building financials in COVID, has anything, has your like general criteria of how you gauge a building strength changed because of this whole situation? That's a good question. That is an excellent question. It, it shifted dramatically. So I used to look at the last two years, three years financials to see what they were doing previously. That's cool. That would give me a good snapshot of what's going on in a normal world. COVID, I'm looking at right now, literally right now, how much money do you have in the bank? How many units are in arrears? 
by the way, do you have a commercial unit that's downstairs? And is that commercial unit paying rent? If you had um, Dwayne Reed that was downstairs, right? And it, it was this sort of great presence that was there. It was feeding money into the condo or co-op, et cetera. And because of that, the maintenance wasn't going up. The common charges weren't. And they stopped paying or a pizzeria that stopped paying. Who's picking up that tab? So our questionnaire, our, our, our sort of look into the building financials has changed to present and future. Right. Roof's been done 10 years ago. How do you plan on paying for that in two years, right? Are you getting a, a refinance on your mortgage where it was like lockstep, no problem? What do you do? We're dealing with that with a small building right now. Building can't get a refi. Just can't. They don't have enough people at the bank to deal with a refi. What do you do when it becomes payable? These issues will persist way, way uh, into the future because again, you know, when people talk about vaccines, oh, it's going to be fine. Yeah. We have to separate the economic from the physical. And the economic conditions specifically to commercial units and also condos that, that sublease and you have tenants that aren't paying um, are going to be there for a period of time. So our snapshots are now future rather than, you know, now and past. You know, it's so crazy. You know, before this whole thing, if you were a building with a commercial tenant, you were, you were golden. You were great. You were just, I mean, no one, no one in the commercial sector right now. I mean, Jesus Christ, that's, that's. It's, it's a bloodbath. And how do you, you know, the more, the, the more sort of pressing thing is the, the thematic thing is even the time is of the essence letter, not to transition anyway whatsoever, but clients will say, how do I get this person out of this house that I want to buy? And yeah. I, I could, I could send the, the best time is of the essence letter in the world. There's no one home in the court system right now. Who's going to enforce these things, right? So you have these commercial units and you want to evict someone, get in line. The larger sort of thing, there has to be some sort of fiscal stimulus that comes from Washington to New York in some legitimate and dramatic way um, to sort of alleviate the, the, the sort of pressure that's actually there. And I think that will, frankly, happen one way or the other. Well, I, I think if I could use this as a, as a nice uh, segue, I, I think it's a great point. And I think a lot of that has to do with, and if I could focus on rentals for a second, I think a lot of landlords are thinking the way you're thinking, which is that down the pike, there's going to be something that's going to help out. And so a lot of their decision-making right now is very short-term focused. Uh, the concessions they're giving are very sort of focused on one year. You know, anything beyond that is sort of, I don't want to go in that territory because I think there's light at the end of the tunnel and I want to, you know, lease it then versus now. And I'm curious, when you look at your investor clients, are, are they thinking the same way? Or are they, are there some that are able to take advantage of sort of the short-term chaos for the long-term gain? In 2019, so two things I'll say. The investor clients are very intelligent and so are the sellers right now are very intelligent. This is not what it was years ago where you had these marked opportunities into the 2008 to just make a bundle by buying in bulk from people that are unsophisticated. Sellers know that you know these investors are going to come in and try and you know, nickel and dime them and give them 40% less or 45% less and it's just not happening. The investor clients that I see are focusing again a little bit on new dev and sort of bulk buying and seeing what they can get there. Um, they are rather scared of buying in any unit whatsoever where there's a tenant in place in the condo because you, you used to be able to count on cash flow. I've been warning my investors about that since 2019. COVID had nothing to do with this. The new rent laws that went into effect in 2019 essentially put anti-lock brakes on the entire system. You couldn't get someone out even if you want to. Forget pandemics or not pandemics. Now you make it doubly hard to do so. If I'm representing a buyer that wants to buy in a unit um, where there's a tenant, I have the buyer actually sign a waiver with me saying, I understand that, Daniel, you gave me the advice not to buy with a tenant in place, but I nevertheless wish to go forward. That's one of the, the problems, at least I'm seeing with investors in terms of buying with these things. One, from a new dev standpoint, man, how do you price these things? And two, from a cash flow perspective, 
do I know whether or not this white collar individual that works for a hedge fund or finance or anything else is going to keep their job three months from now, mm-hmm. right? If, if someone works at a corporate office, you know, again, you, you, you compare this to what it was 12 years ago, 13 years ago, you knew who was getting hardest hit for the most part, right? Here in 2008, let's say, here, you just don't know. I mean, my wife lost her job. She was, she was in a fashion company for 17 years or 18 years. And she came in and she lost her job. There was a bloodbath across. These are not people that generally loses, lose their jobs. And so where does the next sort of thing fall? And that investors have a big problem with that. Um, and to touch upon you, Deb, that there's going to be, I mean, some, some issues there going forward, I think, as well. Yeah, I mean, this is this is really, really very interesting. I mean, we're running out of time here, Daniel. Um, I got a couple of uh, speed round questions for you. Yeah, what you got? Okay. I am a buyer. Mm. Okay. Mm. What is the due diligence time frame? When is it expected? We got an accepted offer today. Deal sheet goes out today. At what point do I worry that due diligence is not done? So if you're a buyer and you're buying in the car, and a good listing agent and everyone's on the same team i'm getting due diligence done in about three days final question um i'm a buyer i'm considering lenders i'm aware other than praying what i would tell you to do is two things one what lenders lent in that building and when did they lend and who was the lender that's there honestly you know and i don't want to tout names there's no reason to tout names but the big people in these banks are big for a particular reason they move mountains. There's someone at Wells Fargo that I work with all the time. There's someone at City that I work with all the time. And I don't, what I do know is that they're big for a reason. So I'm not going to some upstart, you know, this is their first or second year doing loans and figure it out. And they're really nice on the phone. I need this deal done. And that's cutthroat. And unfortunately, that's what you need these days. Oh, wait, wait. Daniel Gersberg, thank you so much for your time. Amazing stuff. Thank you for bringing us into your little world um, on the front. And Diggs, this has been Talking Manhattan. And we'll catch you next time.